Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God. Uh, This morning's text is famously known as the Great Commission. Perhaps you've heard it many times. These are the last words of Jesus to his 11 disciples, and they're meant to helpfully orient us to a major priority of the Christian life. And yet, I know that for many of us, the Great Commission, uh, or the idea of talking to someone about Jesus, um, has a lot of obstacles, both external to us and also within us. And I think that the fundamental misunderstanding of the Great Commission is that Jesus has sent us into the world to do something hard, difficult, and often painful with few or no resources except for the human will to just do it. Just do it. I think that that's a great slogan for Nike. It might be good for sports activities, but I do not think that it helps the Christian to talk about Jesus and to spread the good news of him. So we're going to see in this that this commission was a great source of comfort to Jesus' disciples. And in order to see Jesus' comfort in the Great Commission, we've got to see these three major points of this text. First, that the Great Commission really is a blessing. And it's a blessing, secondly, given to the church. And lastly, that this commission will be fulfilled with Christ's presence. So a blessing to the church with Christ's presence. And so with that, would you Turn with me to God one more time as we pray that he would lead us through this text. Our Father God, I thank you for um, the word that you give to us that guides us and leads us and helps us to see the character, the heart, the salvation, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us to engage this text with eyes that are opened by your Holy Spirit, uh, that you would encourage our hearts to the task that you've given to us and that you would truly comfort us um, as we engage in our task, as your disciples, as your children. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, This morning I'd like to address an inconvenient truth that Christians in our time and culture believe that telling people about Jesus or evangelism is important, but we all struggle to actually speak about the gospel, sometimes even to share that we're a Christian. And you and I live in the Bay Area, and so sometimes we give ourselves a little bit of leeway. We say, you know, it's really difficult to be a Christian here, and it is. But I ministered in Dallas, Texas before this. Uh, Texas is, as you know, part of the Bible Belt. And as a pastor, I observed the very same thing. And the usual approach to remedy this situation is to sort of have an evangelist or a missionary come and share some positive stories And you can see how bold that person was, how they stepped out in faith, how some people got saved. And stories like that are inspirational, but I have found an observation that inspirational stories don't have the power to change us. And so the true key to lasting change is, is I believe, a closer reading of the Great Commission. 
And so first I want to uh, address a common prevailing attitude towards this commission. I think that in speaking with other believers, I've discovered that some of us view the Great Commission with futility and frustration, uh, very similar to the way that Daniel from the original Karate Kid viewed his entry into karate. Do you remember that movie? Have you seen it? Uh, you remember? If you haven't, let me just bring you up to speed. It's a great movie. It's on Amazon Prime. I just watched it recently. It's good. Uh, it's still good, even though it was from the 80s. There's a scrawny kid named Daniel, and he gets picked on in high school, and he meets Mr. Miyagi, this Japanese maintenance man in his building. And he asks Mr. Miyagi to teach him karate. And so Mr. Miyagi agrees, and Daniel meets Mr. Miyagi, and do you remember what he has him do? He has him wax his car. And there's this famous line, a wax on, wax off. And that's very confusing because that doesn't seem like karate. And then he comes back the next day a little bit sore, and Mr. Miyagi makes him sand his floor. And then he makes him, uh, and it looks like this. And then uh, he makes him paint his fence and then paint his house. And all these movements, uh, as Daniel progresses, he gets more and more frustrated until this pivotal scene where Mr. Miyagi says things don't always seem as they appear. And he begins to throw punches and kicks at Daniel. And Daniel is able to effortlessly block them with wax on, wax off, or sand the floor, or paint the house. And the point is this, that Daniel did not know what he had. He didn't know that he was doing karate. And so his chores, his exercises, were always approached begrudgingly. I want to ask you, have you ever felt that way about the Great Commission? I know that some of us approach the Great Commission with a certain measure of guilt and shame. And we express it this way. We say things like, oh, I really, I really should share my faith more. I really should share the gospel, but... Uh, it's, it's just so hard, or I'm really shy. Or maybe you have someone share um, about share some inspirational stories, and you might think, wow, that's really great. I could never do that. Or I wish I could do that, but God hasn't gifted me. Maybe you've heard those things. Still worse, uh, there are some people, and I think you've met people like this, who think that they're doing a good job at the Great Commission, and they weaponize the Great Commission against other believers. You've met people like this, who uh, they're usually judgmental, aggressive, and they say things, or they think and sometimes even say things like, oh, look at those people. Oh, I can't believe my church doesn't do evangelism. You know, they just need to get with it. And I want you to take a step back for a moment and think about Jesus and his last words to his disciples. Do you think that he gave this commission to guilt and shame his disciples? Or do you think that he gave this commissioned to people so that they could use it as a weapon against each other? I don't think so. And I think that, and if you think that the Great Commission is merely the Christian's marching orders or a job description, you will probably end up down one of these two paths, discouragement or self-righteousness. And so here's the key. The Great Commission is, the key is seeing that the Great Commission is first and foremost a blessing. Technically, it's a benediction. Now, growing up, I had no idea what a benediction was. I always thought it was the pastor's way of telling me that it was time to go to lunch. Um, here's what a benediction is. This is summarizing um, all the different benedictions of the Bible. And here's what they are. A benediction is a special type of blessing given in light of all that God has done on your behalf and has called you to do as his disciples. I'll say that again. A benediction is a special blessing given in light of all that God has done on your behalf and called you to do as his disciples. And do you know when benedictions are given? They're usually given to God's people in the context of their fears and doubts. 
And the Great Commission is no different. Take a look at verse 16. It tells us that the Great Commission was given in the context of doubt. It says, some of the disciples worshipped the risen Jesus, but some doubted. Let's talk about doubt for a moment. On the campus of San Jose State, I meet students who doubt. They doubt that God is real. They doubt that Jesus ever existed or did any miracles. They think that his resurrection is pure fiction, a myth passed down. And you and I understand this category of doubt. The doubt that the disciples have is not like the doubt of the students I meet on campus. because, And you know why? Because the disciples are looking at and speaking to the risen Jesus. They don't doubt that he existed or he did anything. He, they're speaking to him. But there is, they do doubt. And so what do they doubt? The doubt they have is a very similar doubt to what you and I have. It's the doubt that keeps us from actually sharing the gospel. Uh, let me explain it to you this way. For some of us, evangelism is hypothetical. Um, it's, there have been surveys done that it, there's actually a surprising amount of Christians who have never shared their faith. And that's not to say that uh, if, if that's you, I'm not trying to guilt you into it I, or to make you feel guilty. I'm just saying that this is just a reality of the church. There are many who have never talked to anyone about their faith. Um, but if you ever do step out and you actually try to share the gospel, you will realize that people reject that message, and sometimes people reject you. And if you're honest, that's scary and it hurts. The disciples just saw Jesus crucified by two of the most powerful groups of their culture, the religious powers of the Sanhedrin uh, and the governmental powers of the Roman Empire. At the time of Jesus' resurrection, these two powers, uh, the Roman Caesar and the chief priests, are still there. And so the disciples don't doubt that Jesus existed, but they do doubt that this risen Jesus really is the answer to humanity's problems. They doubt that this Jesus has the power to overcome evil in the world. They doubt that this Jesus will take care of them. That sounds very familiar. I think that the doubt that they have is very much like the doubt that we have. And every person who has actually thought about and tried to spread the good news of Jesus Christ knows that ministering, sharing the gospel, is hard and oftentimes overwhelming. I feel that on campus. I said before, San Jose State uh, just announced this year that with the incoming freshmen and transfers, there are 40,000 students on campus. Last year, that was 32,000. That is an, 40,000 students is an ocean of students. And with the RUF ministry being new, uh, you know, a couple years ago, I had no group, and then I had a small group, and then we had a couple of Bible studies. When I'm on campus and I think about a couple of small group Bible studies in an ocean of 40,000 students, it's hard not to think things like, God, are we having any impact at all? Uh, God, how am I going to reach all these students? Or, God, I don't have the power, the influence, the ability, or the cool factor to reach college students. Think about you, New Hope. You're a church in the Bay Area. Barna says that the Bay Area is the number one unchurched area in all the United States. And it's the number sixth de-churched area, meaning that it ranks sixth highest for people who used to go to church but then stopped going. In light of this overwhelming task of being a church in the Bay Area, it's hard not to doubt and be overwhelmed with the difficulty of sharing the gospel with your neighbor, your friends, and perhaps for some of you, people in your own family. And in the face of this doubt, Jesus gives us the blessing that we need. And he does that by beginning by saying, all authority has been given to me. 
Is that really true? Uh, I've heard doubt of that statement a couple of ways. Uh, one is when people come to me and they say, Brian, you know, our culture is just moving so far away from God and the college campuses seems like uh, they're just places where they teach things um, that draw draw young people away from God and that's just um, really, uh, really difficult to deal with. Or I've heard it this way, you know, uh, if you're ever going to reach people in our culture, we cannot be locked into the old views of the Bible. Those two statements or those two thoughts and sentiments are statements about authority. It talks about the authority of the educational institution over our hearts and minds, and it talks about the cultural authority over our hearts and minds. And in light of these two great powerful forces, they're not nothing, they're, I think they actually are very powerful, Jesus says, all authority is his. Not some authority, not most authority, but all of it. Only a king who has defeated both his and our enemies could say that he has all authority. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, the power of sin and death were conquered once and for all. And in doing that, he secured for himself all authority. Jesus is not saying, I'm going to give you some really great advantages as you compete for the hearts and minds of people. He is saying that there is no competition. I have already won. I am already king. And so before we hear any command to go into the world, to make disciples, to baptize and teach, we have not a command, but a statement of fact, a blessing. Blessings are to be believed or disbelieved, received or rejected. And so we see that the Great Commission is principally a matter of faith, trust, and not primarily of duty. Either Jesus is telling the truth that he really has all authority, or he is a liar. And the Great Commission forces the issue for us, doesn't it? It exposes what we really believe about Jesus' authority. And what you believe about Jesus' authority will tell you, will dictate how you approach the call part of the Great Commission. If Jesus really has all authority, you and I will press on and not give up, not begrudgingly, but with confidence. At RUF training, they teach us to remember this reality of Jesus' authority through a very simple mantra. And that mantra is, God is at work. And I actually encourage you to say that and think about that wherever you are, whether you work in the home or you're on campus or you are at work. As you think about your friends and family, remember that God is at work. This is how it applies on campus. Before we ever get on campus, we remind ourselves that God is at work. And that helps me from thinking too highly of myself that I'm going to go on a campus and I'm going to kick butt and take names for the kingdom and I'm going to start this revival on campus. If you start a ministry like that, you will burn out quick. Everyone who goes on and says, I'm going to be a big deal, flames out. But it also helps me not think so low of myself. If I don't see fruit around every corner, I can still rest secure in the fact that God is at work. So it helps balance me to see ministry biblically. See, God presents himself not as a taskmaster, but as a good king, vested with all the authority of God. Friends, if Jesus is going to send us into the world on mission, it is on him to provide everything we need to accomplish the task. And so I want you to hang all your worries, all your doubts, all your fears, even your apathy towards the mission field, to towards non-Christians on this phrase, all authority. Only Jesus can shoulder and bear the weight of evangelizing the world. 
with authority not in ourselves, but in God alone, he says as our good king, go into all the world. I want to focus on, before we talk about the go, I want to focus on this blessing. When Jesus commands his disciples to go into all the world, that was a revolutionary blessing. It means that when I step onto campus or you're in the Bay Area, uh, in Silicon Valley, that God is calling you to understand that as a king, he has laid claim there is no land, nor country, nor city, nor campus where God says, you know what, church, you don't need to go there, or you don't have the right to be there, or you know what, those people, those people don't need the gospel. Go into all the world means that we are prohibited from seeing people as unworthy of the love of God and his gospel message. As I said before, I've had the privilege of living in California and Texas, two of the most powerful states in our union. And uh, what I've noticed as a pastor is that human beings are remarkably similar. One sad commonality that I've seen between these two seemingly polar opposite types of people is that both groups of people love to highlight the sins of those who are different than us. And if you do that, it's very easy to do. You will kill your evangelistic spirit. I think that we'd all acknowledge that uh, people are valuable and made in the image of God. But when we decide to highlight the sins of other people, for the Bay Area, what are our buzzwords? Uh, we don't like people who are racist or bigoted or backwards or dumb. If you see people like that, you will always look at the world and look for your people, people who you think are like you, and you will not go into all the world. We've struggled as a society to deal with our conscious and unconscious prejudices Consider the fact that the Great Commission is the death nail from God to our prejudices. Think for a moment. Were the disciples prejudiced uh, against other races and cultures when Jesus said this to them? If you survey the data of the Gospels and you think about the time of life that Jesus lived, the evidence would point us to say that they were. They were um, prejudiced against other people. You remember the Samaritans. You think about the, uh, the Gentiles. And uh, the Great Commission demanded that those prejudices die when it came to those who are worthy of hearing the gospel message. The Great Commission, thankfully, doesn't discriminate. We do, sometimes unconsciously, and yet God blesses, blessing calls us to die to ourselves and to see the world as he sees it. The gospel tells us that none of us are worthy of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and yet Jesus is given to us freely. The Great Commission tells us that everyone on earth is worthy to hear that message and receive that gift. The world is not worthy of Jesus, but God has said that everyone, everyone is worthy to hear the gift of Jesus and receive eternal life that they don't deserve, but that God has given as a gift. The Great Commission reminds us that good news is not just for people who look like you, think like you, and come from the same place as you come from. That's who we naturally want to share good news with. And I totally understand that, wanting to share good news with your own people before anyone else. But the Great Commission pushes us further. When Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world, they hopefully remembered this is what God had promised from the very beginning to Abraham. God promised Abraham that through him, his offspring would be a blessing to the whole world. And so the Great Commission is indeed a blessing. It's a benediction. And benedictions have a sending or a charging element. We're not blessed to sit in our blessings. We are blessed and sent out to live obediently before God. And Jesus says, go into all the world. 
make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. It is not a suggestion. It must be a priority for us to engage in outreach and missions. And in light of that strong command to make disciples, many of us are petrified or discouraged. And so would it help you at all to realize that the Great Commission was not given to you as an individual, but was given as a directive to the church? Another way of saying that is that normal gospel ministry happens through the community of God's people. I think one of the obvious indications that this is a corporate commission and not an individual one is the fact that the Great Commission calls us to baptize people. And you and I know that in normal circumstances, it's actually pastors of the church who baptize individuals. Even if you can't explain why that seems right, you know that when there's like weird baptisms or rogue baptisms, as I call it, it's weird. Uh, I, I get to work on college campuses and I got to witness a very strange baptism in college. Uh, we were at our college fellowship meeting and, and there was a student who uh, was you know, tracking with and wanted to become a Christian. So he goes to our, our college ministry president. There's no campus minister at this college fellowship, totally student-led. And he says, I want to be baptized. And so the president, I think very well-meaning, said, well, I know the Great Commission uh, calls me to baptize, so let's just do it. And so this student took a water bottle and poured it all over the student's head, baptizing him. And Nicole and I looked on at this situation, and we didn't have the tools or the knowledge to know how to argue against this, but we just thought there's something really weird about this situation. And the weird thing about it um, is not just that it was done with a water bottle. It was done so far removed from the local church context. And that's really important because this student who had the water bottle dumped on them never got plugged into the body of Christ, never got discipled. I got to meet with him. Um, coming back from Dallas, I moved back to the Bay Area, and I knew he was in the Bay Area. And I got to meet with him, and I was sad to find that this student, he doesn't consider himself a Christian. He's not connected to any local body. He has no real interest in um, walking with Jesus. And so that's one picture. That's sort of an extreme example of thinking that the Great Commission rests on our individual shoulders. But I'd like to show you another picture, um, another picture of what it means to fulfill the Great Commission corporately. As I showed in the PowerPoint, I want to introduce you to Stephen. Stephen was born uh, into a Vietnamese household. Uh, he came here because his family's fled the Vietnam, his, his parents fled the Vietnam War. And so he grew up in the Bay Area as a refugee, uh, as a Buddhist. And yet when Stephen was a young boy, his mother loved to get him library books, stacks of them. And in one of those stacks was a picture Bible. And Stephen remembers reading it from cover to cover. I remember the mantra, God's authority, that God is at work. Stephen's Buddhist, grand, Buddhist mother gave him a picture Bible when he was young, and he read the whole thing. When Stephen was in high school, he was invited to church two times, and both times he remembers how friendly Christians were. Uh, I don't know the names of those Christians, but they had an impact on Stephen. Now, what was also happening during this time was Stephen's uncle was discipling him in Buddhism, and so by the time that he got to college, he was uh, a devout Buddhist. And uh, I, didn't, I wasn't the first touch with Stephen. There was another student coming to RUF who was a more mature Christian. And they were both in civil engineering lab. I think it was in concrete mixing. 
lab, and this student began to talk to Stephen and invite and he invited him to our Bible study. That's where I first met Stephen. Stephen's first Bible study was not a particularly evangelistic Bible study. The topic, the second commandment, which is the prohibition against idols, which as you see a newcomer, you might want to talk about God's grace. You might think, well, this person doesn't need God's law, or you might not think it works, but God's word always has its impact. After that Bible study, Stephen asked me, Brian, is it possible to be a Buddhist and a Christian at the same time? Now, uh, I just met Stephen. Am I going to so quickly tell him that his family religion and probably his culture is not compatible with Christianity? Am I going to tell him that, uh, you know, he, uh, that uh, his beliefs don't match up? You know, he might get offended. He might leave. And so what should we do? And the Great Commission is really helpful here because the Great Commission obligates you and me to tell the truth. Jesus Christ is truth, and everything he did and taught was truth for our own good. So when I tell Stephen, when I told Stephen no, I didn't tell him no to drive him away, but I told him no to draw him in. I invited Stephen to not let the reality that Buddhism and Christianity were incompatible get in the way of the fact that RUF was a community I wanted Stephen to be a part of, It was a safe place to doubt and to work through his objections and to ask his questions. RUF would invest in Stephen not if Stephen became a Christian, but RUF would invest in Stephen because Stephen is valuable to God, so valuable that the church would send, uh, would put RUF on that campus to reach out to Stephen. Interestingly, as Stephen began to come to understand the gospel message, um, he he came to Easter with me, Uh, I think that was one of his first trips to church. Um, He began to ask more questions, and he said, uh, this is one of the final questions before he uh, put his faith in Jesus. He said, Brian, if I become a Christian, do I have to leave every teaching of Buddhism? And I said, Stephen, what teaching do you want to hold on to? And he said, well, I really want to do unto others as I would have them do unto me, which is funny because I just had to show him that Jesus said that very same thing in Matthew 7, except I added this. I said, Becoming a Christian would mean that you would be given divine power by the Holy Spirit to love your neighbor in a way that you could not do by your own strength or your own willpower. And so RUF was influential in Stephen's life, but it was only one piece of the puzzle. There's a larger piece of background going on. Throughout this time that Stephen is searching, he begins to go to church regularly, and he begins to hear the gospel weekly. Um... And uh, I want to share with you how important it is and how evangelistic it is for you as a church, the value of you just showing up. So as I said, uh, the, uh, many people think that they, they come to church and they don't engage in the Great Commission. And I want to show you how just the act of showing up for corporate worship is doing that very thing. When I go on campus, I get the privilege. It is a privilege to introduce someone to Jesus. But eventually, I have to teach them what it means to worship God. And there's no better way to teach someone what it means to worship God than invite them into a worshiping community so they can see what it means to sing praise to God, so they can see what it looks like to pray, so they can understand how valuable it is to sit under the preaching of God's word. There's no better way to teach someone how to follow Jesus than to invite them into this type of community. It's always my goal to get students into the local church because while students may love RUF, the reality is they'll only have college ministry for maybe four years. The bulk, the majority of discipleship 
will take place in the local church. And so if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission, we do need to go into new territories like campus, like countries in the mission field. But we also need places to bring people who come to know the Lord. They need to see what it means to follow Jesus. As you look at the command to teach everything that I've commanded, I want you to know that uh, I have the privilege to be a teacher in the church, but so much of the Christian faith is caught rather than taught. I can run down a list of doctrines, but how is someone going to learn what it is to follow Jesus? They're going to learn it from you. I think college ministry is great, but honestly, a lot of college students are healthy, and a lot of most of them don't die. How valuable is it for someone to come into a community of believers of different ages and races and backgrounds and to watch someone face death, not in the usual way, but in the way that a Christian does, with hope. How valuable as it is for someone to see, uh, for a Christian to see a marriage who is going through conflict come to reconciliation. They're not going to learn that. At least they're only going to learn that hypothetically in college. They're going to learn how to live as a Christian in this community. I talked about my friend before who's uh, we don't know how his parents are going to react when they find out that he's a Christian, but there is a possibility that they shun him. Who is going to be the family that embraces him? It will be you, the church. And so never think that you're disengaged from this commission. You're definitely a part of it. I'm glad to report that eventually Stephen was baptized, and I want you to draw a contrast between the water bottle baptism and what Stephen had. Because in the water bottle baptism, He's baptized into thin air, into nothing. But Stephen was baptized into his into Christ, into his local church. And that's a beautiful thing. And I'm glad to report that. He, it was actually really cool. Uh, so his first trip to church was last Easter. And I don't go to that church, um, but I found out that Stephen sang in the choir uh, this past Easter in his local church. And I was when I heard, I was like, my heart is full. That's so fantastic that they are um, they're discipling him. Think about your own conversion and think about the statement, God is at work. God is at work in so many processes as you think back upon your life. He is at work and God uses the full power and force of his body to bring people to know him. In partnership for the gospel, God is glorified. So as we come to the close of the Great Commission, we look to see how God ends this benediction. Jesus ends his benediction the same way that all benedictions end with comfort to his people. And so never again should you look at the Great Commission with guilt or shame, nor with a way to beat up other Christians with. But when you come to the Great Commission, you and I need to hear Jesus and receive his blessing, his charge, and his presence. Jesus tells us, in light of all of our doubt and the great weight of our task, he tells us, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. When I was an assistant pastor back in Dallas, it was my job to convince people to go on missions trips. Here's how I did it. I said, I want you to come on this missions trip. It's not as bad as you think. It's really not as, as, that expensive. You're going to love it, and it's going to be awesome. Now, some missions trips are like that, but Jesus knew that not all missions trips would be like that. Jesus looked, as Jesus looked at his disciples, he knew that many of them would be persecuted, many of them tortured. Jesus does not say go. It'll be carefree, easy, and inexpensive. He never promises you that. But he does give you something better. He tells us that he will be there 
with us. The presence of Jesus is everything to the Christian, especially when ministry is hard. Think for a moment why it's hard to share the gospel. The doubt that God cares, uh, that God, um, the doubt that um, seeing why ministry is so hard, seeing that God won't provide, asking God, why have you abandoned me? These are the internal conflicts that really do keep us from sharing. And Jesus knows that his 11 apostles are going to be tempted to think this way, especially since Jesus would ascend soon and no longer be with them. And so, in light of this great doubt, Jesus says, I will be with you to the very end, not part way, but all the way. And that is what our hearts need to hear as Christians. We need to hear the promise of God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will never leave you or forsake you. Our souls were designed to hear that. And when we hear it, we stop trusting in what we see and start remembering by faith that God really is with us. And as we think about the Great Commission, what I've said here today, what the scriptures have told us, I want to close with this illustration. Um, Think about this when you think about the Great Commission. It's the story of eight-year-old Mitch. Eight-year-old Mitch uh, was staying at the Ronald McDonald House. Do you guys know what that is? The Ronald McDonald House was a special structure set up for kids with very difficult diseases to treat or terminal cancer. And Mitch had terminal cancer. And in the Ronald McDonald house, they often have shared rooms. And so Mitch had a roommate that was separated by a curtain. And he overheard a uh, conversation of his roommate. The little boy was sharing to his father, Dad, are we going to have Christmas presents this year? And the dad said, well, son, you know, we've spent all our money trying to help you get better. So this year we were not going to have Christmas presents. And the little boy burst into tears. And the next day, Mitch talked to his dad, and he asked his dad a funny question. He said, Dad, how much money do I have? Which is kind of a weird question. And his dad said, well, son, you have $8,000. Now, for an 8-year-old, sorry, it's $6,000. For an 8-year-old, $6,000 is a lot of money. And he said, Dad, I want to take the money out of my bank account, and I want to give it to the other kids in the Ronald McDonald house. So his dad uh, withdrew the $6,000, and they spent the night stuffing these envelopes full of money, To those they knew had a little bit greater need, they gave a little bit more. And then Mitch and his dad went to each of the rooms and snuck these envelopes in the sheets, under the pillows. And then they waited. And Mitch got to hear these bursts of joy, one after the other, as these families would come and open these envelopes full of money right before Christmas. And Mitch was so happy, and he looked at his dad and said, Dad, this is the best day of my life. We've got to do this again next year. And Mitch's dad looked sad at Mitch and said, Mitch, we've talked about this. You're not going to be here next year. And Mitch said, Dad, I know. And he thought for a moment. And then he looked up and said, well, then you'll have to do it. Jesus is saying that very thing to us. He is leaving. He's going to leave his disciples soon. But he gives them this commission to go and tell the world about great joy. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in this command from Jesus to go and share and tell people about the gospel and all our fears that we forget that the gospel really was meant to bring joy to those who were hopeless. And he gives us that task. And so as you consider the great blessing of the Great Commission, I want you to remember 
that usually we think the Great Commission is good news for people out there. It's good news preached to sinners. We also need to remember that it's good news for those of us in here, still sinners, but those who have been charged to share the gospel. As you consider the Great Commission, your great task, remember his blessing, remember his presence, and remember that you go to share the gospel with the benediction of God. Let's pray together. Our Father God, I thank you for this great commission. We confess we have looked upon it uh, and looked poorly at you, thinking that you are some sort of taskmaster, someone who sends us um, uncaringly into a difficult circumstance. But that's not what your scriptures tell us. We see you as the gracious king, vested with all authority. We see you as someone who has love and compassion upon all the nations of the earth. We see you as someone who will never leave us or forsake us. Help us with our great task. Bless us as your church. And may many people in the Bay Area come to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.